Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Research in Pharmacy Practice. This series focuses on discussions for all things related to research, including fundamentals, best practices, and practical advice for all those interested in contributing to the advancement of knowledge and of practice. I'm Barbara Nussbaum, the Vice President for Research and Education with the ASHP Foundation. I'm pleased to welcome our host for this episode, Dr. Lainey Jones, Associate Professor of the Department of Genomic Health at Geisinger and member of the Foundation's Research Advisory Council. In addition, Lainey was the 2018 recipient of the ASHP Foundation Literature Award for Innovations in Pharmacy Practice for her article published in AJHP titled, Medication Therapy Disease Management, Geisinger's Approach to Population Health Management. Welcome, Lainey. I look forward to your discussion. Thanks, Barbara. I'd like to introduce our guest for today's episode, Dr. Sarah Spindler, co-chair and professor of pharmacy practice at the School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at Binghamton University. Sarah is a previous recipient of the Foundation's Sustained Contributions Literature Award. So Sarah, will you describe your career path and how you've incorporated research? Thanks, Lainey. I was very fortunate as a PharmD student at the University of Minnesota to be mentored by some great early clinical pharmacists. And from there, I proceeded to go on to the University of Illinois, where I did a hybrid program at the time, which was a residency fellowship. It was a two-year program. It's a regular PGY-1 residency, but you really started your research in the first year and finished a lot of projects in the second year. During that program, I received great mentorship in terms of research statistics design. And if anyone has tried to conquer it, using SAS as a statistical tool back in the days where there was no YouTube videos and you had to learn from a book. So it set me up in a great path. I also had the opportunity to learn how to do pharmaceutical industry-sponsored research. So I was a primary clinical research coordinator and ran several of those programs and learned the ins and outs of contract-based research as well as practice-based research. So I took the job at Philadelphia College of Pharmacy in I'll say 1988, and proceeded there to receive some mentorship from some senior faculty, one of which did renal research and happened to be involved in a couple of projects that were cardiology related. And again, those were the two large projects were sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry. That particular faculty member actually left to actually take a full-time job in the pharmaceutical industry. Her name was Patricia Audette. And those were kind of mid-cycle in that those research projects. So by default, I became the pharmacy faculty member that was involved in those projects. And one of which was an antiarrhythmic drug, Rocanum, that never made it to market. But I managed to still publish the paper in that area as an example. But I learned and had an affiliation with the General Clinical Research Center, which was an NIH-founded research center at the University of Pennsylvania, where I held an adjunct faculty appointment. Some of the individuals I was mentored from were from the renal and nephrology department, actually, as well as receiving mentorship, again, on you can never get too much statistics mentorship and study design mentorship, because again, that was the purpose of the research center was basically training individuals on how to do research. 
So I worked with some of those industry-sponsored research projects, started a couple of my own. At the time, for instance, Isratapine was an investigational antihypertensive drug, collaborated with some of the faculty at Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, um, and kind of developed a cardiology renal focus at the time in my assistant professor days, I'll call it. I was also very fortunate uh, to be encouraged to apply for new investigator grants. Professional associations offer a great opportunity for new faculty within the first six years of their training, end of their training, to apply. And that includes, obviously, ASHP, ACCP, and AACP. So those three organizations offer a certain dollar amount. You know, it's not a huge amount, but they do help faculty get started in doing investigator-initiated research, which I thought, again, was excellent. But again, building your research team, sometimes it's not necessarily... You know, one pharmacist, one senior faculty member, you learn certain things from a lot of different individuals. So in addition to working with some cardiologists, again, the renal department actually became a great mentorship partner for me. And I did proceed to do a study that, again, still gets cited quite a bit on creatinine clearance calculations and how to do creatinine clearance and using different measures and which one is the best estimate of actual renal function, which I did do hundreds and hundreds of 72-hour urine collections I was a the clinical coordinator for. So evenings, weekends, I was working to help collect those urine samples to do the actual granting clearance. So again, doing a lot of the work as a coordinator became a more uh, senior investigator and then kind of expanded some things out into doing training programs of residents and fellows. So I had three uh, two-year fellows um, and I'm happy to say they're very successful faculty member now. One is a dean at a pharmacy school, one's a department chair, and one's a senior tenured faculty. So I had the opportunity to mentor uh, into a two-year more, more concentrated research fellowship. And again, they did investigator-initiated research through that NIH-supported General Clinical Research Center. Also developed a PGY-1 and a PGY-2 cardiology, and then obviously PGY-1 general residency program at Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, our residents were required to do research um, and actually required to submit a manuscript for publication. Also worked with our industry fellows there. And our industry fellows at the time actually were required to do a research project. Uh, Many of them would work in their area, for instance, if it was MedInfo or whatever, to develop some best practices or look across the pharmaceutical industry at best practices. And many of their projects were also actually published, which was great. So basically how I developed a research interest in um, antithrombotic therapy actually started at the University of Minnesota on my pharmacy, essentially presentation, so to speak, in my final year was on a thrombolytic drug, TPA, which was new at the time. So that kind of spurred my cardiology interest. I developed, again, going forward through my postgraduate training and then in my first job was looking at the antithrombotic therapy, whether it was heparin. Again, heparinomograms, and you still see research on heparinomograms. I remember so one of our residents or a couple of the residents at the time had done some research on heparinomograms presenting at the Eastern State ASHP residency conferences. And then again, with students as well. And then looking at some areas of practice related to mostly, I think, from the resident perspective, and this is probably true for most residencies, it's essentially solving a problem, right? So you have a issue or problem, potential new use of a drug, something that's being used at the medical center that you would like to examine. So that usually became the topic or a potential topic for a research project. So uh, most of my projects turned into 
clinical-based practices, and I'll, you know, give you one of the example of probably, um, you know, a, an influential one that really helped with the medical center was looking at the inappropriate prescribing at the time when amiodarone had the big drug interaction with simvastatin, and there wasn't as sophisticated epic, you know, guardrails and and prevention of alerts and enough people to answer alerts. So we looked at changing that practice at the medical center. And again, that paper was eventually published in HHP. So we have the opportunity for many residency research projects to actually go on to, to achieve publication. Obviously, you have to have a, a motivation in your residence. Currently, in my faculty role at Binghamton University, I have the opportunity to teach in a residency research certificate program that SUNY Upstate Medical Center does. And again, that's also one of the first of its kind in the country. Um, they went on to actually get that initial data published in AJHP, but also provide the residents with something called a micro-credential on residency research. It's an excellent program. It has an excellent foundation in research training and study design. And that's now been expanded to two other residency programs are participating in that through the SUNY Upstate Medical Center. So that's been a great opportunity to help essentially in a different way, not necessarily doing a mentored research project, but being you know a portion of that. So I, I teach one of the topics in that area as well for that. So those were kind of my initial areas that I've gone into. Thanks, Sarah. It sounds like you've had a very fruitful career kind of sparking from your kind of early days after graduation to kind of your first jobs have really led you on this research path. So can you tell us about your current areas of research and why you're passionate about them? So now I have more of an administrative role. So I think there's been two areas, one of which, again, I grew through my affiliations with professional associations. So I did a lot of work with ASHP and ACCP, primarily, I'll say in the you know, 90s and early 2000s, but there weren't a lot of pharmacists participating in medical professional associations. We think about how comprehensive care is now and how interprofessional and interdisciplinary everything is, but it really wasn't that way at the time, especially in professional associations. So I had the opportunity, again, through some great pharmacist contacts within the industry. So people I had met through doing work with product, you know, products that were being developed or going on the market to participate in larger projects that were being funded or promoted, I'll say, by professional associations. So cardiology, again, is the topic that we're speaking about today. But from a cardiology perspective, most of us know something, the NCDR registries that have grown through the American College of Cardiology. Um, those registries actually started with something called the Pinnacle Registry. It was one of their first registries. It was one of the first outpatient registries to be started in the United States. So I had the opportunity at the time to help build the registry in terms of what types of data variables that were being asked to be collected from that. Uh, then obviously, turned everything over into the NCDR registries, which have built into multiple different topics within cardiology today. Um, I'm currently involved with other pharmacist professionals, um, people like Craig Beavers, who's you can apply to do um, investigator-initiated research. So if you have a problem, again, more on a larger scale, where you need more larger data set within cardiology, you can apply to these programs for funding of your investigator-initiated research. And again, it helps to build a team to know 
that you'll have input. So it's there's cardiologists, pharmacists, um, and those typically had been, again, in the areas of antithrombotic therapy. So one of the early projects I did with Pinnacle was looking at something simple like warfarin and atrial fibrillation as an example. But then we looked at lipid-lowering drugs within the Pinnacle registry. Also, there's been large, again, cardiology is famous now for its registries, but one of the registries was the Crusade registry. And again, it started out through the American College of Cardiology, and that registry grew, again, had multiple publications. But then as a pharmacist, I was able to work within that group to identify several issues surrounding, for instance, low molecular weight heparin dosing in that particular patient registry. So I was able to use the registry and collaborate with some physician investigators who were, again, looking at the original, which was not necessarily like specific issues about dosing, like pharmacists perseverate on weight-based dosing, or we still see the question come up on some of our lists about obesity dosing with, with several of our medications. The other opportunity I had through American Heart Association was being involved in the Quality of Care and Outcomes Research Group. I was one of the, it's a, uh, Within the American Heart Association, there's different, I'll say, areas or of focus for, for people. I had always been, even since I think I was a student, I think I joined the American Heart Association as a, when I became a pharmacist as a, in the clinical realm. But then I was invited to work with a group of individuals, again, through meeting them through these other registry works, where people were more interested, again, in these large outcomes and research databases. And that formed a group, that QCore group. So I had the opportunity to be on their fellowship, became one of the early fellows and kind of some of the early, I'll say, multidisciplinary. And I, I see, again, there's there's many pharmacists now who, who have a lot of collaborative practice. They publish very frequently in the journals, but there was, again, no like bridge between cardiology and pharmacy that had been done in that area. So although I, I don't think I worked as much on some of the registries in there, it was more on the professional association side, which did lead to a lot more pharmacist involvement in that in that area. So again, large databases and registry on the cardiology was kind of that, that middle focus. And then coming back now, full circle, I'm back to being a department chair now. So my focus is a little bit different, but I've had the opportunity to be involved with students and student-related research. So also with looking at essentially SOTL or scholarship of teaching and learning opportunities, especially at a new school um, where we're having the opportunity to, to implement some new programs. So that's kind of when I've been involved now. And so I've had the opportunity to do some, you know, mentoring, mentoring on the student side, the, as well as, again, having spent the middle of my career doing mostly resident mentoring. Great. Thanks, Sarah, for that. As you know, in my own career, that's also focused in the cardiology space. I've done kind of a lot of work really focused on prevention. So I received, just giving a little background about myself, I received my doctor of pharmacy from Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, where I met Dr. Spindler. Didn't know at the time I would be doing cardiology research and our careers would kind of collide uh, later in life. But after pharmacy school, I went and got a master's in public health um, at Columbia University and then ended up at Geisinger, where I've been for the last kind of eight years of my career from postdoctoral fellowship, and then transitioned to faculty uh, from assistant to now associate professor in the last six months or so, and have had the opportunity to work on different training grants. I had an NIH um, 
National Institutes of Health uh, K Award that I conducted focused on implementation science training, which gave me that methodology background that Dr. Schwindler was talking about that's so important to kind of building that foundation within the research area to today, where I serve as the principal investigator on multiple uh, large grants from the NIH and also foundation funding, really focused on one kind of sub area of cardiology where I improve identification, cascade testing, and management of those with an inherited cholesterol disorder called familial hypocholesterolemia, and have really started to kind of get into this prevention, even more into prevention, where we're trying to leverage now well-child screening visits to preemptively screen for type 1 diabetes and familial hypercholesterolemia in childhood. And, you know, a lot of this wouldn't have been possible kind of without the mentorship that I received. And I'm at this point in my career where transitioning from being mentored to also mentoring kind of new rising stars in the field who both have pharmacy, kind of medical school and PhD level backgrounds as they kind of embark and, and find their career path. So, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about how mentoring impacted your career and what advice you might give to to students going into this field? Sure, and then I'm gonna come back and ask you the same question. Because when you enter your first job, it's like you went from, you know, I applied usually to some postgraduate training and you're you're saying, I need to find a mentor. Who do I need to find or what do I need to do? I think, again, thinking about research as solving a problem, right? So I think that's one of the nice things about mentoring students is that students, I'm hoping by the time they're done, uh, in our program can see that you can use research to answer a clinical question. And even though, you know, you may not have applied for a big grant or you don't, you know, necessarily maybe even carry it out to a manuscript, but it, it's still, you're using that thought and that training that you receive. So coming into a program, it's like, you have to figure out what it is you don't know to try and find some of your answers to your problems. Um, and I think if you keep asking, you'll potentially find your mentors. And I think the more you know, you can look around to different departments. There's people that may have the same interests as you. Now, I think it's it's almost, I'll say, in a national basis. I think there's opportunity, and, and sometimes even the well could be too large. I found a, a small niche looking at a group of people that do pharmacy school assessment. And I'm not someone that's, you know, an associate dean of assessment, but we found a common area of interest. And it's people that can still mentor me because I'm necessarily not familiar with certain assessment or how they typically conduct research, but I can learn from them. So it's when you, again, as you mentioned, when two different areas collide, you can learn from each other, which I think is the nice part about you can mentor people in what it is you do well and, and be mentored in something that is that you are looking for. So obviously you come from your residency with a pretty much ready-made mentor. So I, I think, though, if you're looking for, you know, a postgraduate training program that's strong in research because you think you would like to do more research, I, I think those are out there and you can find them. And it's one of the questions to ask is, you know, do your residents publish? Where do they disseminate their information? Do they apply for the research grants? Oh, my gosh. Having served on the selection committee for the ASHP resident research, there's some great projects. But again, we could do more to encourage people to apply and uh, being someone who mentors fat faculty or junior faculty. I think part of our training is that we are recognized as an expert. I, I taught and I'm sure Lainey took that course in like in uh, where we talked about a seminar and you have to critique the literature. And we train pharmacists so well in pharmacy school to find the flaws in everything, right? And to really 
you know, look or be skeptical and someone has to prove it to be correct, that they think the research needs to be the one that's on the cover of New England Journal or be the one that's tweeted out, you know, a million times now. But it's just answering the simple question. If you have a simple question, the simpler it may be, the quicker you are to get your answer. And, and almost sometimes it's it's still something that's worthy to do. I think that's where some of the hindrances to just apply for the grant because we there is, you know, small grants or small opportunities that are out there for things that are, you know, definitely publishable. So I would encourage people not to not to potentially think too lofty or or think that they need to design a a three center implementation science project right now when you could just start with one or a small center, you know, collect some information first. So I think sometimes we're thinking too broadly and, and we may have to go back. So that that's one of the things I've learned when I've been trying to mentor individuals. So, and the other, you know, I'll think from the opportunity um, to be able to do that is that, you know, first transition from your residency. I think it's a good time to do a handoff between the preceptors and how to, just as a checkout, when you're done being a resident, it's like their residents are very exhausted. I've heard from some of our students who have now finished up some of their residencies and, and they're tired. It's about post-COVID, people are tired. And it's a matter of, I want to hand you off to set up your, you know, your career in a, in a good way. So it's having that discussion about what to look for in a mentor, what, what someone who knows you well thinks that you're going to be looking for in a mentor so that you can just be kind of out on, on the alert. Not necessarily identifying who that is or or who that may be, but it's like, here's where you're thinking you needed to go. Here's where you may need to learn more. And so, you know, many programs will have some type of a, a mentorship or a development program so that when you come into that program, your development program, that you're kind of set up to be looking for the people that you need to, to get things started. And obviously, as you know, and me dealing in academia, it's when we hire someone who's out of a training program, it's like, yes, please finish up, finish up things that you had to do. Oftentimes when you're finishing projects, it often leads to, oh, here's another great question that we could, we could ask about that. And it leads you to have some kind of a project that you can start in your developing your relationships within your new community of, of coworkers that you have. So I think that's, that's important. Lainey, where did you find your mentors when you first came to Geising. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. And I think you find them in all the places that you aren't looking, I think is, is the best advice I'd give to people. You know, when I got to Geisinger, I never knew I was going to be doing familial hypercholesterolemia research, but then found out I had this great passion for kind of preventative cardiology and inherited lipid disorders and ended up having one of my main mentors being a geneticist, which was kind of outside the scope of pharmacy and, you know, really kind of focus kind of in one area, but he was able to help me grow and learn as a researcher where my strengths were and where my weaknesses were and help me work on those weaknesses so I could excel within the field. And then I've had a number of great, you know, mentors kind of in the field as I've grown that I really view as pioneers. And sometimes it was just a simple email or walking up to them at a conference and saying, hi, I'm, you know, Lainey Jones, really interested in talking to you about what you've done. And, you know, if you have any time, you know, we could, we could chat and would be interested in doing a project with you. I've also found, you know, real, a lot of success in signing up for those mentorship programs that a lot of organizations offer. And actually now um, had a mentor when I first started kind of in this lipidology space, who was a pharmacist, and we were matched together because of that. And then we've become very close friends and have written papers together now as 
kind of I've gotten up to speed in the field and um, been able to kind of work on different projects together. So I don't think that there's never a time where you're not looking for mentors or people that you admire and kind of want to learn from. And then also, you know, now, as I said, I'm at the point where I'm trying to give that back of everything that I've learned to kind of uh, have my, you know, staff and students kind of excel uh, from from what I've been able to accomplish. So, you know, one of the things that you said that was was, I think, very poignant was the fact that you go to a conference and you mix and mingle and talk to people. So it's one of the things I think that people really liked, for instance, about going to this year's ASHP meeting. There was quite a lot of, I'll say, festivities going on and a lot of mingling going on. But that's that's where you oftentimes get your best ideas. So you're talking to people. It's not necessarily, you know, going to the presentation or getting CE credit. It's mostly about here's what we're doing and, and you know, talk about problems in practice that you have and how they can be solved you know, with a, with a potential researcher or, or some other, you know, type of collaboration. And you did mention there are s- certain professional associations that developed, you know, the opportunities to, hey, can you volunteer to be a mentor? And, you know, in terms of looking at that volunteer, you know, once you get to that point to be a mentor and then, you know, the responsibility that's, yes, I, I will sign up to be a mentee <laughs> and what that responsibility may need. Um, but that's the nice part about now, you know, things being expanded necessarily outside your own practice site. So it's it's not that everything needs to be, as you said, all in one place. It's we're able to get those opportunities. I still think going to the those residency conferences where the residents present their ideas, it's really those, that's the ground, the groundwork of what's going on at your practice site. Because those are those are what the practice site really wants the information they need to get. They want the information to help improve practice. And you get to see what um, is is going on in practice. Now, it may be that it's not, you know, the perfect one and you're not going to see it in New England Journal or what it may be, but it's like there's multiple things. You can see what the hot topics are, right? So it's like I oftentimes that's kind of how I use or I open the residency talk that I have to give in the SUNY Upstate program is like, you know, here's some of the things that are like the hot topics now. Like this is how they became the hot topics now. And it's like, even though we see 65 different resident projects along the same theme, because it's all, you know, information that you need at the individual health health system. I'm like, here's some of those ideas, but here's where maybe some of the weaknesses are. Here's where the strengths are of this program or, and if, or this particular project that's been done. And here's how you could do it better if you need better information or if you have a desire, you know, to get that published. So there's, you learn so much by going to those conferences, not just from talking to people. Right. And Dr. Schwindler, I think you you mentioned this a little bit, but do you want to expand anything on different research opportunities that students might have that you've experienced or that you know are out there? My favorite topic right now, because I think it's a strength of the Binghamton program, and I'll use this to toot our horn a little bit. We were the number one school in the United States for residency PGY1 match this year. Um, I think our students were pretty good at leveraging what they get to be involved with, is, which is called a capstone research project. Um, we have an independent individual research program as well for, I'll say, maybe 10% of, or 5 to 10% of the students. But every student in our program has to do a capstone research project. Overall, it was somewhat modeled on the UCSF student research projects that are also um, a hallmark of their program. 
Um, the students work, our students work in groups of four or five. It can be uh, biomedical, you know, sciences, lab-based research. It can be clinical research. We have external preceptors um, that mentor student groups that, again, it's very similar to a resident project or in general, a PGY1 resident project, but it's spread out over a year and a half. So the students get kind of matched up to a project. They come and that's the end of P2. So we're doing those matches right now. And we have like a fair where they get to, you know, hear about the projects, then they rank them and there it's kind of a matching program. They come back in the fall. Um, they work. Uh, and again, this is all uh, somewhat credits built into our curriculum. They work with their mentor. Um, and I'll speak mostly about, again, pharmacy practice type projects, but they develop the background and the methods and get an IRB approval. Um, they're working with practice-based faculty at, at different hospitals, as an example. Sometimes there's SOTL-related research. And then they come back during P4 and they do one of their API experiences is a six-week experience in research. Um, again, that's required for all of our students. So I think that culminates then with the poster presentation. Um, many of our faculty do go on to potentially develop um, manuscripts. Some students are very highly motivated, others not so much. Like, right, I don't know who I'm going to get for my capstone capstone group or what, you know, they desire, but we, you know, we had a pretty high percentage of our students wanting to do residencies. So many of them at least will go on to present it as a poster at the ASHP meeting, as an example. Um, so we're pretty new, obviously, into this program. So we'll see how many of them go on to get published. But that part is really exciting to me and figuring out that the students, you know, it was this scary research thing. And sometimes they didn't even like talk about it when they would go for their interview. Oh, we always do it. Doesn't every school do it? <laughs> and I'm like, no, every school doesn't do it. So back in the, I'll say the early days of when uh, Philadelphia College of Pharmacy had 14 students. Yes, there was a whole residency program, right? In, or essentially residency training type program. And they had to do some research or at least design the project at the time. But most schools, it's like, it's, it's not necessarily part of their curriculum. So it is one of the things that we like. They do get seminars along the way. And if I could say they're pretty much very similar to what the SUNY Upstate residents get as part of their doing their micro-credential. So some, some of those things, we kind of tried to bring the best of both of those two programs together. But many schools have API research that they offer to students. So whether it's, you know, may not have started in their P3 year, but there are certainly APIs that offer research opportunities to students um, if they are able to do so as an elective. So Sometimes getting students involved early kind of, you know, turns the light on to what can be done and done in practice. So that's been a great part of my career. Great. Thanks so much for that. And I think we'll leave everyone with just one last question for you is, you know, now that you've done all this great research and, you know, you've analyzed the data, what do you do next and how, what's your steps for kind of disseminating your research? So it's usually best to think about those things as you start the project, right? So where is this going to be best fit? And again, working in academia, there's a broad spectrum or array of places that you could publish. Uh, so it's usually, I think about what's not been done, how long is it going to take you? And if you look at my board, the projects or the ideas get shuffled around, right? So something's hot today and it's like, oh, I better finish that soon because it's it's a hot topic or something's wait. And I think if my former residents are listening right now, they'll know sometimes 
it waits and it, sometimes we wait for them <laughs> when the resident and the, and the time is right for them, you know, to finish their publishing. But being involved in the editorial boards, again, if you publish in journals, a lot of connections I've made have been through writing, you know, just a review article many times, your projects, all the work that gets done in the preparation of your project and your study design and your methods and learning as a trainee or a mentee, that whole process about what you've learned can be written down into a manuscript. So in in my mind, if you have motivation, there's every project could have at least two types of manuscripts. So uh, being involved in the editorial boards because you write on a journal, it helps you see what's out there earlier. Being involved as a reviewer, right? So so you see some of the things that are very early in practice. So serving as a manuscript reviewer, typically I'm, I'm doing several a month for a variety of different journals, uh, where it's medical journals or pharmacy journals. And again, creating posters or poster presentations is a great way to start. There's, if you can't travel, there's some organizations that do virtual poster events. But as I mentioned, it's good not just to present the poster, but to go around and mix and mingle. ASHP has had some mentored posters, right? So I think I can only imagine how scared a student is. Oh, you have Dr. Spindler's coming by to be your mentored poster thing. But I've learned the the trick question to ask every, if you're the poster presenter and it's mentored, you always ask them, tell me about how you got started in your career. So that's that's my tip to the because they know they do like to hear about it, but they know that you like to talk about it. And then you won't ask them the scary questions about their poster. So for the most part, again, it's encouraging students or, or residents to, you know, basically get out there and take the chance. And again, if you're writing a summary of your project, you can certainly probably put together a poster. So those are some of the good ways to kind of get started or look. Some of the editorial boards, the editors go around to the meetings and they'll say, hey, this looks like something that's great for our journal. Can you consider submitting things? And sometimes if you don't know, don't necessarily waste the time sitting under review. You can ask the editors, like send, this is my idea, or this is an abstract. Would this be appropriate for your journal? Do you think it's worth submitting? And they'll they'll be very honest with you and tell you if it's if it's worth something or submitting. But I usually try and think about at least three or four places that you can submit it and and hopefully you don't get down to three, four, five, or six sometimes, but there's usually some place. And again, now there's a lot of communication that's going on, I'll say in social media. So that'll be a whole nother probably course or an elective, you know, I have in the back of my mind is is how to critique things that are going on in social media, right? Because they're soon going to be skipping the publishing phase and going right to the social media phase. So it'll be the same with how we have to analyze, you know, how the the quality of the work is based upon something that may not necessarily be as peer-reviewed, or maybe they'll be peer-reviewed social media people. So maybe I'll be thinking about that in my in one of my next careers. Thank you so much. So that's all we have time for today on our podcast. I want to thank Dr. Sarah Spindler for joining us today to discuss incorporating research into cardiology practice. If you've enjoyed today's episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast for more great content from ASHP. Thank you for listening to ASHP official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.